Hey guys, today's is a doozy. It's all about accessible, immersive experiences, multimedia in its most futuristic, but also accessible. What on earth does that mean? Well, you've got to listen to today's episode. We've got people from Salford University, Verizon Media, BT Sport and Fraunhofer, experts in this field. Check it out. I'm Ben Shirley. I'm a um, senior lecturer at University of Salford and I do a lot of work on audio-related accessibility um, uh, research, <coughs> as a result of which I've had the pleasure of working with some of these people. So uh, welcome to the Accessible Immersive Experiences session. The format of this session will involve Slido and a lot of um, questions from you guys, I hope. I hope you have lots of questions as we go through. What I'm going to do first of all is go through the um, members of the panel and allow them to introduce themselves and explain what they do in immersive experiences and where, where they see accessibility fitting into that in the hope that that's going to stimulate a few questions. I suspect that almost everybody in this room has a slightly different idea of what an immersive experience is. Um, some people may not have a thought about what an immersive experience is, so uh, hopefully this initial round will give people a clue of the kind of things that we're talking about. So feel free to uh, chip in on Slido as we go through, and we'll get to your questions once we've been around the panel. Okay, so first up we have, just to very briefly introduce people, we have um, Larry here, from, uh, who is Senior Director and Head of Accessibility at Verizon. We've got Rupert Brunn, who's a, um, audio, who's a broadcast consultant, currently working with uh, Fraunhofer. We've got Chris Hughes there, who uh, works actually upstairs from me at Salford, that is currently working on the iMac project, which is working on uh, accessibility and immersive experiences. And on the far side there, we've got Jamie Hindhoff, who's Chief Op- Operating Officer of BT Sport. So um, without further ado, can I ask you to, Larry, if you can kick us off and tell us about what you do in immersive experiences and accessibility. And I shall hand you the clicker. Do I have slides? I guess I must. Yes. Uh, For those of you who can't see the screen, I'm appearing in black and white today. It's a corporate look and feel. Everyone else is in color. Uh, I'm head of accessibility for Verizon Media. It's a division of uh, Verizon which is mostly oriented towards our media and content. I'm sure you've heard of Yahoo, TechCrunch, HuffPost, many other brands like that. Our accessibility team is focused first and foremost on making our products fully accessible, as you've been hearing throughout the day. Um, We do focus on that. We have a small but mighty team, 50% of which are attending this conference this week, so there is six of us, so it's 50%. And because we've been allowed to uh, take on challenges around new and innovative technologies in the field, um, we, when we were bought, when Yahoo was bought by Verizon, one of our new um, sister organizations called Riot Labs. And this organization is based uh, in uh, Los Angeles, and they produce 360-degree videos, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality uh, video. Uh, So that's one definition of what we call immersive experiences. Sometimes for shorthand, we call it XR. Uh, X is the, stands for a variable. Put whatever you like in the X. Um, But for us at Verizon Media, uh, and because our accessibility group is given this free hand, 
we decided because we could, we wanted to take on this question. If we're producing content that is immersive, we should make it accessible. Um, we happen to have a partnership. Let me see if we have a slide here with uh, Cornell Tech, um, which is a university. Is a yeah. Ah. There we go. Uh, in New York City, and they had been receiving funds from one of our uh, organizations, AOL, American Online, and they approached us. Uh, you see, the slide here says July 2019. In January, a professor there said, we're working on this question of uh, virtual reality and accessibility. Would you like to put together a workshop? And immediately I said yes. And from that point, we decided we were going to call together people we knew, uh, Cornell Tech throughout the academic field, Verizon Media through the tech world. Uh, we thought the time was now. We've been involved in gaming. We know... The world of gaming, in essence, is the first step into virtual reality, and gamers have been very good on making their technology accessible. But we knew, or at least we've been saying, everyone on this panel has been saying, virtual reality is the next big thing. It's been the next big thing for two decades, maybe more. Uh, but we're getting the sense it's going mainstream. And we realized if we waited for it to go mainstream and tried to address accessibility then, it would be way too late. So we put out a call. We put out a call to uh, all of our connections and throughout the world of uh, accessibility and technology. The response was enormous. I, I see many people who attended this XR Access Symposium in the audience today because they just thought it was the right thing to do. We had this amazing array of leaders with disabilities and users with disabilities and academics and Microsoft HoloLens and Google and Adobe and Oculus Rift and uh, what am I missing? Magic Leap, who actually hired a full-time accessibility manager. None of the other companies have that yet, but they will. And for a full day, we just hammered it out. What are we going to do to try to address this technology? And I love when we tell people we have now an XR Access Symposium. People say, really, you're going to make virtual reality accessible to blind people? How are you going to do that? And my favorite answer is, I have no idea. Um, but luckily, we have people who really care, and they're really dedicated to this. As I said, many in the room today, Chris from Google, for one, um, we broke into 12 breakout groups to try to deal with issues like Hobbin was talking about, haptics, input, hardware. What about XR and learning? What about in the educational environment from K-12 all the way up to lifelong learning, using sound and image recognition? We talked and talked and talked all day. It was an amazing event. From that day, we then put together um, XR Access, a website now. We have xraccess.org, six working groups around those breakouts. Uh, we've got volunteers who are dedicating their time to lead these groups uh, really all over the world. We're joining together on a regular basis. We have an executive committee. Uh, made up of people with disabilities, academics, tech sector, and we're beginning to hammer this out. This is not a short-term project. We assume this is going to take a long time. We know people want to get together again, and we are and have. From today, from next uh, June, the folks from Immersive Accessibility uh, have put together, we're putting together a workshop all day long in Barcelona at the IMX conference that will be posted on this website. We're having a call for papers. We're calling for it right now. If you have something you'd like to present uh, in mid-June, 
about XR Access. We're going to join together and then be part of the main conference at IMX. Um, and it will keep going and going and going, another symposium. And we're really putting a call out to as many people as possible to join us. And I'm really looking forward to particularly working with the iMac project because they're really the cutting edge so far on the tools we need and the demonstrations of it. And I don't know if I have any more. Oh, a couple of things just how vert. Uh, how's my time? You're good. You've got minutes. Good. Um, our company has been doing uh, virtual storytelling. Uh, we did a story about the anniversary of the Stonewall riots in New York City, uh, an immersive AR environment where you can actually go and feel what it was like. It's a great platform for figuring out, okay, how do we make that accessible? Right now, we're not going with head-mounted devices. We're going with your handheld mobile devices. We're also looking at, hey, we're a commercial company, ads. Um, there's a lot of shopping online that's using AR these days. We want to make our online shopping accessible as well. We're going to use some image recognition, speech recognition, uh, voice in, voice out, to try to make the commercial aspects of augmented and virtual reality accessible as well. Um, Microsoft has done remarkable work with seeing VR plugins into HoloLens where there's a full array of technologies that help enhance the experience already in virtual reality for HoloLens. And that was developed by an intern at Microsoft who then was at Cornell Tech in the PhD program. And I believe that's the last of my slides. For more and all of these slides, you can go to xraccess.org. And we're ready to work with all of you. That's brilliant. Thanks very much, Larry. So we heard a little uh, plug for the iMac um, project there, which is good, which we'll hear about next. But uh, as I'm also involved with the IMX uh, conference in June, I'll give an additional plug for that and yeah. remind people that it's actually in Barcelona as well. So it's actually quite a nice place to be in June <laughs> if you do have something interesting to present or you want to know more about what's going on in that order. Okay, so uh, over to Chris Hughes, if I can just hand you that. Thank you very much. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the introduction. Um, I think it's, uh, as has been introduced, um, we both work for Salford University and I think it says something about one of my frustrations sometimes in the academic world that we both work in accessibility and I was there for at least two years before I realised his office was only 40 (laughs) steps as I counted from my own... But now, now we've found each other. Um, it's quite an exciting time. Um, so, yeah, um, I'm a lecturer at Salford University, um, based in computer science, so I'm a technologist. I like playing with technology, and I like solving problems using technology. Um, I'm also very fortunate that I'm heavily involved in this immersive accessibility uh, project that was referred to before. Um, and in that project, I get to work with a, a consortium of very impressive people, uh, all the way from uh, industry, academia, broadcasters, bringing together everything that we think we need in order to develop um, a kind of full solution. Um, so I like to plug the project at every possibility, um, and this is one of those great possibilities to tell you a little bit about what we're doing. Um, I'm just going to talk over this. So. On our website, if you're interested in what we're doing, we've got loads of great videos that tell you all about it. Um, But this makes quite a nice visual that sits in the background to give you some teasers about what goes on. Um, So basically, within the project, we had 30 months, um, and we were focused on the idea of immersive accessibility. So by immersive accessibility, I mean immersive video. 
So this is kind of where um, we're creating the illusion that the content is all around you. And uh, that works towards the point where you feel some kind of presence because you feel like you're actually immersed within that environment. Um, and although the broadcasters are very much interested in playing with 360-degree video um, and what they can do and whether that's going to be their next big thing, um, we did a, a full survey of 360-degree players that exist, and the accessibility is very limited. Um, we found that most of them attempt to do some work with subtitles, um, and they kind of lift from what happens in the TV world and try and put that directly into a 360-degree space. Um, and none of the existing platforms have really any focus on how audio description might work, how sign language might work when it comes into this environment. Um, so the project's really been focused on developing a complete end-to-end -end workflow solution um, that basically allows us to start at the very beginning where we've got a complete suite of editing tools um, that effectively allows us to uh, create sign language, audio description, subtitles within this space, within 360-degree space, um, all the way through to a player that we have at the end of the process. Um, it's a European-funded project, so the player, it's completely open source, um, and we'll be making it available for anyone that wants to use that and all the research and everything that's happened along the way. Um, the project's followed a complete kind of user-centric methodology. So one of the other things we found um, was that in the kind of immersive 360-degree world, people were making a lot of guesses about what might work in that space. And we've been very lucky within this project that we've had the space um, to actually talk to users, to find out what they want, uh, focus groups that allow us to find out their initial ideas. We could then have several cycles of, of development where we built prototypes and took it back to them to find out what actually works for them and what doesn't. Um, and so as well as um, within the project, us having developed a, a player and all the tools in the pipeline, we've also got a massive kind of uh, amount of research and information that's all published that tells us about um, what the users want and how they feedback and how they respond to things. Um, so you can see in the background, this is uh, a few screenshots of, of one of the videos. And um, you can basically use the player. Um, it's it's web-based, so it works very nicely on any platform. So whether that's um, a head-mounted display, so you're fully immersed, whether that's on your mobile phone where you can move it around and have a look and feel like you're in that environment. Um, it, it works very nicely across the board, um, except we've built in on the top all the kind of accessibility services that you might expect. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very keen to plug the player and the project at any opportunity, really. So if anyone's interested in this afterwards, do come and talk to me and I can point you at demos. And we have a great website that tells you a lot about it. That's great. Thanks, Chris. How long has the project still got to run? So it was a 30-month project, um, and it's now running till around April. OK. So we have been through two development cycles, and we're now at the point where we're about to push out a, a larger-scale open pilot, which is quite an exciting time as well, um, because a couple of the broadcasters involved in the project are now embedding this onto their website and pushing it out to users in the wild, as it were. Which so is, this is a good time for broadcasters and content creators and so on to get involved with the project and to look because the tools are there, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much. Um, next, we'll go to uh, Rupert Brunn. Now, I've worked with Rupert for a number of years when he was at the BBC previously and now when he's um, 
working as a consultant, and I've worked with his colleagues at Fraunhofer on a number of different different areas around uh, accessibility and immersive audio and so on. So if I can hand over to you, Rupert, yep. to explain some of what you've been doing. Yeah, I'd like to start by asking a question of those of you who watch television. How many of you have ever struggled, struggled to understand what's being said because the background music and sound effects are too loud and drown it out? Yes, a lot of, yes, lots and lots. So about a decade ago, I realised this was going to be a growing problem because of two factors. Firstly, we have an ageing population and it's a problem that tends to increase with age. And secondly, because the ways in which we create and consume media are diversifying very rapidly. So it used to be that we all watched television on a great big box that had a screen about this big and some decent-sized loudspeakers that gave quite good sound. As technology has advanced, televisions have got thinner and thinner to the point where apparently you can't sell them if they're thicker than about this. I don't know why, because by the time they're on a stand or the wall, they're this. But, but they've got to be really thin, so they have very small loudspeakers, very often pointing down or pointing backwards. Um, and particularly with the inexpensive models, it can be quite hard to understand what's being said. And then we consume virtual reality. We consume content with earbuds from our mobile devices uh, on the underground train where it's very noisy. So the whole experience is diversifying very rapidly. And I realised this was going to make this problem far worse. So I started looking for people to work with and I met up with Fraunhofer. And six months later, we did an experiment from the Wimbledon Tennis Championships in London, where we had a web player that allowed you to watch the matches from centre court and a single slider control that let you rebalance the sound. So if you pushed it one way, you got very clear commentary and virtually no sound from the court. And if you pushed it the other way, you got the sound of the court with all the baseline grunting as people were serving the ball and but no commentary. And I learnt a few things from that. Uh, I first of all learnt that um, the, the, the audience, the, the public liked it, they understood it, and they wanted it. I also learnt that the BBC were doing a really good job of creating a sound balance that was in the middle of the range that the public wanted, but which almost nobody wanted. <laughs> Because if you are focused on the game and you know your tennis, you don't want a commentator. You want the immersive experience of being on Central Court at Wimbledon and being in that environment and watching that match. As where, if you have a hearing impairment, or even if you don't, but you're making the dinner while you're watching this thing, actually you need the commentary to be loud and clear because you're not able to to follow it otherwise. And... I realised from from those those things I'd learned that there was potential in this. So let's fast forward nine years later. Where have we got to? Well, Fraunhofer have turned these ideas into an open international standard called MPEG-H Audio. And it's actually on the air in South Korea. So if you go there, perhaps we should all go, um, you can actually have on your television screen controls that will let you adjust the sound balance. How you do that is, is something that uh, we, we need to do some more work on. Uh, I'm an audio engineer. I'm quite happy to have my television screen covered in controls and sliders and meters and play with all of that. Apparently, some people don't want that. So what we offer are some simple presets where you can have the broadcast mix or you can have one with the dialogue boosted or you can have one with the audio description enabled. You can choose different languages. 
And it's not just of benefit for an accessibility use. You could, for example, uh, if you're watching a football match and, and it's Liverpool versus Arsenal and you support Liverpool, you don't want to hear cheering when Arsenal score. You want to hear the booze. So you could have personalised commentary or decide which crowd you want to sit with. There are a huge number of potential uses for it in addition to the accessibility benefits. Um, and it also does the immersive thing with sound going up and down and left and right and forwards and backwards. And we can do that with a simple sound bar underneath the television. You don't have to fill your room with loudspeakers anymore. And I think what's really good about this is that it... The, the accessibility features are part and parcel of the whole offering. There is no incremental cost to the content creators in, in creating those or in the, the consumer products in incorporating them. If they're going to do MPEG H audio, you get the whole lot. So there's no excuse for a poor uh, accessibility experience. It, it's, it's all there. And we have consumer products and we have a full range of commercially available production tools to create the content code, it distributes it, works on television, works online. So that's what I've been doing and uh, I'm very much looking forward to some questions when we've got past the introduction from the other members. Thanks very much, Rupert. I'm particularly interested by the way in which the accessibility features are just another part of the personalisation features so it becomes Mm. a kind of standard feature set which sounds like it's uh, something that is a lot easier to pitch and to sell to broadcasters and so on. Okay, um, Jamie, over to you. I'm the broadcaster you're pitching to. (laughs) Um, Okay, Uh, and I have worked with Rupert as well, but we've never had a conversation before this, and we're doing something quite similar, actually, which should be interesting. So uh, I'm just going to take you on a little story. Uh, For those people who don't know, BT Sport, um, which I joined from the BBC to help launch and set up as a live sports, UK-only sports network, um, which is online and on TV. Um, And we've been around about seven years, so quite a competitive market. Um, And we've built up quite a a solid reputation around using innovation to take people closer to the action. So we're the first uh, live sports broadcaster in the world for 4K, first live sports broadcaster in the world to deliver Dolby Atmos um, immersive sound, first live broadcaster in the world to do 12 camera 360 coverage with separate commentary, first broadcaster in the world to do high dynamic range and wider colour gamut in live sport in all of those aspects. And in 29th of July, this is not a sales pitch by the way, it is a story to take you through where we're going and it will make sense. But 29th of July this year, we did something which I was very proud of. Um, we launched a new channel called BT Sport Ultimate. Uh, and BT Sport Ultimate is, is literally, the title is about giving the audience the ultimate viewing experience. Um, and it's about building trust with audiences and not having to talk about 8K, 4K, HDR, WCG, DA, etc. Uh, and what it does is very, very clever. I think it is anyway. It's one channel that will determine what platform you're on, what connectivity you have, and what subscription you have. And it will serve a variant of that content. So if you've got a um, fantastic 4K TV, you'll get 4K HDR. If it does HDR, if you haven't, you'll get HD HDR. If you're on your mobile, you'll get HD HDR. If you've just got a, an old TV, you'll get 4K SDR, 4K HDR. You sort of get the picture. It's about actually being very clever and super serving one channel to very many different people. Um, now, the challenge with that is that's the ultimate viewing experience for um, about 90% of our audience. Uh, and the thing that, that really interests us is around the fairness agenda, actually. And it's about actually, if you go to the heart of what sport is, it's a, it's a real social experience. 
And therefore, how do we, through BT Sport Ultimate, create a more inclusive environment, which means it is truly social for everybody, regardless of challenges that they may have? Um, and we've been doing some, some work um, with research and development and looking at what I should have mentioned is BT Sport Ultimate has delivered over IP. Um, so what this means now is as a broadcaster, you're not doing one-to-many anymore, you're doing one-to-one. And that's really, really important in this. And we've been working on a technology called um, object-based broadcasting. Um, I'm not sure people will understand what that is. So I will just give you a little definition for simple people like me to help understand it. Think of a sandwich. Think of two slices of bread. They could be brown, wholemeal, or white. Think about that as your channel wrap. Think about a sandwich. You could have ham, you could have pickle, you could have cheese, you could have tomato, you could have cucumber. Depending on your tastes, you may choose a different colour wrap and you may choose different ingredients. If you think about that as a broadcast feed, are you staying with me? Um, where each one of those ingredients is a package and each one of those packages is content that we create and curate. Okay? This is what object broadcasting will do and this is where the BeatSpot Ultimate Experience will, will come from. So we are pretty far down the line here. Uh, we will be launching something next year, and this will become a feature of the ultimate viewing experience. So to explain what that will be, Rupert's touched on it. So audio. Um, if you're hard to hear and you may want to turn the commentator up or down, you may want to turn the background sound up or down. That will be part of our standard provision under BT Sport Ultimate. Uh, and if you're a Liverpool fan, it means you can turn Michael Owen down. Um, um, Colour blindness. So colour blindness is a really, really important facet, actually, and people may not realise this, but 99% of all people with colour blindness are male. Uh, football is very, very difficult to watch, and we're a big football producer. So having an opportunity to be able to select um, a variant of the live game that is adapted for colour blind people means you can still all watch it in a shared experience, but you're choosing it that way. Um, Different audio. So one of the things we are looking at to launch part of this is about blind commentary, which is different to radio commentary and it is different to TV commentary. And what we want is people to be able to home select in a live environment, I want blind commentary rather than this. And again, you create this, everyone getting together, everyone joining in. Um, and then the other thing, and this is a really, really simple thing, but it's, I think is really effective for people hard of sight. Um, it's twofold. Firstly, we're going to give people the opportunity to make the score clock bigger or smaller. So you can make it bigger. So whether you're sitting and someone with you who maybe is struggling to see that, you can create in a live environment that different experience. Um, graphics overlays. Sometimes either the colour of the graphics is wrong, the detail of the graphics is wrong. So let's give people the opportunity to select the different graphics that suit their needs better in a live environment. And also the, the last thing on this, which I think is really, really important as well, is, is we still have the old-fashioned broadcast one-to-many. So if we put a programme out um, that goes lovely on a 50-, 70-inch TV screen, we do the same version on a mobile phone, which, to be honest, is awful, because even with the best eyesight in the world, you can't read some of those graphics. So what we're looking to be able to do is for you to be able to decide the device you're on, select the graphic overlay you need, the best fits um, your requirements. It's a really, really exciting technology. And um, this isn't just cuckoo land. We are, we are doing a, a massive event next year around this with all of the aspects I've just talked about. And we are looking for BT Sport Ultimate to become the truly inclusive um, relationship to allow people to enjoy sport together, which I think is what 
my job should be. That's fascinating. It sounds again like the kind of the accessibility elements come as part of a personalisation package as a, as a kind of broader broader approach to it. Yes. Um, following up on one of the points that you're saying about uh, colour blindness, the, the mm. top question we have at the moment on uh, Slido is: is there any way which made me? Look, is there any way of making snooker on TV more accessible to a colour blind viewer? Which immediately reminded me of that famous bit of commentary on. Uh, mm. Was it on the BBC? Mm. On the BBC? If, if, for those with the black and white TVs, the blue ball is the one behind the green. <laughs> Very helpful. From, I don't know, the change, change over to, from black and white to colour TVs. So, uh, Jamie, what's, what's the solution, solution for colour blindness well, for football? I don't have and, and, on BT Sport, but um, yes. Is I would imagine it's the same solution. Yes, it's the same challenge, and there is software out there, and it's just... It's working out how you make that software available with the broadcast feed, which is where OBB, for me, comes in. It's critical. And what it, it actually does is, is change or enhance the variance so that you can see the difference between colours. Um, and, and I get I'm quite prolific on Twitter, get quite a lot of feedback, you know, and every now and then, and we do, I do listen to it. So we'll do a graphics overlay, for instance, where we've done, let me get this right, blue on black. Yeah. Which actually, if you're colourblind, is bloody useless. Yeah. Um, so, so there is technology there, and we're looking at this mechanism to, to give people that opportunity to select that, but also allow them to select it, but other people in the room can still watch the live, live sport at the yeah. same time. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really, really helpful. Um, oh, why have, there's another one for you, Jamie. Sorry oh, about this. Why, why have BT Ultimate on its own? Why not have it as a default for everyone? Does it cost more? That's, that's the most popular question, which suggests <laughs> that there's, there's a lot of potential custom out there for, uh, um, for the channel. Well, we are a, a subscription. We pay TV service yeah. anyway. So to get BT Sport, you have to pay for us. Um, and it, it's about the ultimate viewing experience for me has to be everything, um, which is, is, it's been more of a challenge. So 4K, you know, we, we did um, live 8K in Amsterdam that will be coming very soon with us. And again, I'm not going to be talking about um, BT Sport are now doing 8K. What I want people to do is BT Sport Ultimate is the ultimate viewing experience that gives you all of these different aspects. And yes, it costs a little bit more. Um, over time, I believe it will become standard. Yeah. Um, and it's challenging. Yeah. Um, but it's also a fantastic opportunity to, to allow people to enjoy sport in a very different way. No, that's great. Thank you. Um, there's a couple of questions around VR and AR. So uh, one around uh, what research has been done to date to understand what the barriers are with using VR and AR. And obviously for visual impairment, there's um, clear barriers there. And another related one around, um, which has fallen off the screen somewhere, around, around um, somebody not having come across useful solutions for VR and AR and accessibility. And Larry, would that be something that you've looked at in the XR forum? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the initial questions are, how do we map what we have for solutions in linear flat media to this immersive environment? So, for instance, we think about closed captioning or subtitling. Um, really great work done by uh, both the BBC and IMAC. This really interesting question of, in an immersive environment, where do you put the captions? Um, it's bottom center as a default, but if I'm sitting here and Ben's talking to someone else and I'm kind of 
listening in on his conversation. Should I have his captions over here? Should I turn this way and his captions get larger? BBC did some very interesting research, which basically concluded we need more research. Uh, so, All good research does that. Yeah. Um, but the, the issue really is uh, how do we take what we've got today and go far beyond that? Uh, solutions are being in the midst of development. The iMac editing tools got some really interesting ways of indicating where captions are coming from using color, arrows, compass. Um, same thing for description in an immersive environment for a blind person. Audio description exists on a lot of media today. Uh, but if you're in a surround environment, if you're blind, how do you even know there's anything interesting to see? Should we use beacons, gestures, haptics? Um, the iMac editing tool enables you to go to a place in time and space and attach a description. So as you turn your head around, as you're looking around a virtual environment, you can hear a beacon or a sound or all different ways of indicating there's something to be described for you. Um, we even consider it something called directed description where uh, you can uh, use haptics or any number of ways of signaling to people there's something out there for you to absorb. It's all in development now. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything available commercially in the field yet, but that's absolutely what our XR Access Initiative is studying, as others are yeah. too. So it's kind of ongoing work at the moment. Absolutely. No, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a fascinating world. I mean, I love the immersion of 360 video, but one of the real beauties of it for me is the fact that, okay, so the action's happening there, but most of the time I'm kind of interested in what's happening behind. Um, and that becomes really difficult then uh, if you have a disability and you can't follow the audio cues, for example, that tell you that the action's behind you. Um, and so, as, as Larry said, a lot of what we've done in, in terms of the iMac player we've looked at different ways of indicating where the person speaking is. So we don't at any point want to force you to follow the main action, because as I say, sometimes if you're watching the opera, it's actually more interesting to see what the conductor's doing or, or what's happening behind you in, in a field somewhere. Um, and so we've, we've trialed various different approaches, such as using arrows that give you an indicator that the action's behind you, or um, we've got a radar display that you can use. It's, it's kind of all about customization and choice, what you find the best approach to use. I think it's also important to remember in terms of um, immersive content, it's a combination of things. It's not just video, it's not just audio. Um, and in terms of 360-degree video, we have fantastic kind of ambisonic sound. Now, you can actually create sound that feels like it's behind you. And you can create the cues that, say, the person speaking, you can hear them behind you. Um, or, as I say, you've got the video, and you can create the cues in there as well. So I think it's, it's an important point that all these things are there. And if some of those cues don't work for you, that's at the point where we need extra information. Well, I guess all those additional sources of information for various different, different specific needs would apply equally to gaming as to VR and, and AR. The gamers have done great work. Um, captioned games have been around for years. Uh, insets, where you can focus in on one particular area. So we're learning a lot from that community, which uh, there's a foundation called Able Gamers um, that really have delved into that, mostly around mobility impairments, but they're looking at sensory as well. Yeah. So I think we're learning from the gamers, uh, but the gamers have their own world, and we're looking to expand to everyone who might benefit. Yeah. 
And I think one of the, building on that, one of the opportunities when we get uh, immersive audio that can move around the room when you're consuming media comes with audio description because it's possible to, uh, for the user to decide where in the room the audio description voice should come from. And if you move it away from the screen to be uh, a voice near the shoulder of the person who wants the audio description, there are two benefits to that. The first is that it doesn't have to be as loud in order to be understandable because it's separated in space from all the other sounds. And the other advantage is that it's less distracting for other people who are watching the content with you who don't need it. And so all of these things are now technically possible. What we've got to do is is persuade broadcasters in, in Europe to start using them uh, and find out how they work for you, which we can't do until you've experienced it. Yep. I think there's some really interesting uh, mainstream application right now, and that's the Bose sunglasses. Um, they are doing some really interesting immersive work in audio. $200, um, and you get spatial audio in various environments. It really points to where we can go with audio-only immersion. Mm-hmm. Uh, really interesting. Uh, I don't know if Bose even realized what they were creating that might help people with disabilities, but we give them a pat on the back anyway. Yeah, yeah no, some yeah. really interesting possibilities around that, particularly mm-hmm. as, as aids to um, visually impaired people. Carrying on the kind of audio theme here, um, I think, so one of the questions that's come in, uh, how do you see immersive audio experiences driving innovative talk formats such as podcasts in the future, which I'm guessing Rupert may have thoughts on? Well, that's a really good question because I hadn't thought about immersive podcasts. No. Um, radio dramas. Yeah, certainly radio drama is, a, is an area. So if we, we move away from the traditional podcast content of a couple of people sitting and chatting about something and think about it as delivering spoken word over the internet so that it can be personalised, then certainly radio drama is a clear area where you could... Uh, make it more accessible for people. Um, And uh, drama in general, uh, there's a lot of work being done uh, by Ben and his colleagues in in Salford around making drama easier to understand because in a drama, it's not just the dialogue that you need to hear in order to understand what's going on. It might be that, that, that some of the other sounds, like a gunshot or a car pulling up or a door slamming, are also important to understanding the story. And they've been doing some really good work on the narrative importance of these different sound elements, which could be delivered over an IP platform as a podcast, for example, so that you can have one simple control that lets you decide how important you want the, the speech and the sounds that are important to the narrative to be, how loud and clear they should be, compared with all the rest, which is just painting the scene for you. And one simple control can change the prominence of those things in quite a sophisticated way so that you have a nice, easy user interface and get a really good experience and you don't just get the sound boosted, you hear the sounds that are important to the story. And I think if we can get that incorporated into podcasting platforms, we're onto a winner. Thanks very much. I'm not allowed to plug things being the uh, chair, but I'm grateful that you're plugging my stuff for me, Rupert. <laughs> it's very, very kind. You, you can pay me later. <laughs> In terms of all the um, personalisation uh, potentials of whether it, of, I guess we're talking about object-based media rather than just immersive media, or in a lot of cases, that's the same thing. Is there any downside 
to these personal the potential for personalization can you have too much uh, it can certainly be presented in ways which are too complex for people, and that's a hurdle we need to overcome working with the manufacturers of consumer equipment. Um, another challenge I have met from the industry is that the, the sound balancers will spend hours, days, even weeks finally crafting their sound balance, and then you say to them, oh, by the way, the public are going to be able to mess with this and change it all around. Yeah. Uh, some of them really react very, very badly to that idea and don't want you to be able to alter their finely crafted sound balance. Um, but, but I find that most people, once I talk to them about it, they realise that actually this is really liberating. Because if you're going to create content that uh, people listening on televisions with small speakers um, and, and who have a hearing impairment are able to engage with, the dialogue needs to be quite a lot louder than it needs to be for people who have normal hearing and a really good home cinema system. And so one sound balance is not going to work for everybody. And if they try to do that and just create the one perfect balance, it will be perfect for them in the room they created it and no good for anybody else. And I think that the, the industry are starting to realise that actually allowing people to tweak with their finely crafted sound balance within certain defined parameters actually is very liberating and is a real creative tool and it's not something which is going to degrade their original artistic intent. It's going to make that original artistic intent available to a wider range of people on a wider range of devices. But it takes a little while for uh, seasoned sound professionals to make that mental journey. I would just want to emphasize one thing you said, and that is the user interface, the simplicity. Some of the worst UIs have been developed by, I'm sorry to say, TV manufacturers and cable set-top box manufacturers. And for people to really be able to take advantage of this, it's not a, a downside, it's really a challenge. Make it really easy for people to make their audio best for them, make their personalization really work for them. And, and that's, a, that's a challenge. It is. Can I come back, Ben, on, you, you mentioned challenges, and, and there's two, and a bit of a root's point. One of the challenges we have is, is you know, we are Ofcom compliant. Um, so we have very experienced, experienced sound mixes. I think a really good example is Celtic Rangers sectarian chanting. Yeah. So what we actually do is we mix the sound to make sure that that doesn't come through, because on our, our Ofcom licence, yeah. we could be at risk of breach or a complaint. And the challenge that we are looking at at the moment is by allowing people to mm. turn down the commentary or turn up the background noise. And we are talking to Ofcom about it and making them aware of, of this technology that's coming. It opens up those, those challenges, which I think is an interesting one. And it's also an opportunity yeah. to look at what we do. Yeah. The second thing that is, is important to flag is the more packages I create to give more choice, the more intensive it is. So at the moment, I will be doing a live feed with a single graphics overlay, which is meant to be in that middle, middle ground. In the new world, I will probably be having to create four, five, six different graphic overlays that actually go along with that feed that people can select the ones they want. Yeah. So there, there is more work required yeah. for the right reasons on the ground, but we do need to think about some of our obligations around Ofcom because you start asking the question, which feed were you watching? Mm. And can, yes. can you track that? And can you make sure, you know, flash and imagery? All of these sorts of things do need to yeah. be thought about in the rounds of offering choice. It's an interesting point about the, uh, the old firm games and the kind of, there are elements of that sound scene that you wouldn't want people to be able to 
yes. accidentally push up yes. for, for all that matter. And one of the questions that popped up here along your um, what somebody said about being able to, uh, I think Rupert, about not wanting to hear when the Chelsea fans uh, cheer when there's a goal, goal scored. And someone saying, is there a risk that creates something of an echo chamber? And I do wonder if there's, there's a link between that question and what you're saying there in terms of if you could choose an area of that ground, it, it, there's, there's potential risks around it, I guess. You'd have yeah, to be quite careful how that personalisation was, was presented. Yeah, and we, and we have looked at, as, as part of the OBB rollout, about giving people different commentary depending on the teams they support. But it, and we talked a bit earlier about the risk around OBBs. For me, it's a bit like doing an election special where you've got screens flying in everywhere and curating. And, and at the heart of what we're trying to do is enable people to understand and enjoy the sport the best they can. And, and therefore, I think the focus shouldn't be on clever gimmicks. It should be on enabling more people to sit together to watch the yep. sport. And, and I think that's where the opportunity is. Yeah. The challenge is people trying to do really clever gimmicky stuff that actually looks good for about two minutes but then yes. people don't use it seems that the um, technologies that are facilitating the immersive experience are also potentially facilitating um, new ways of providing access services and new ways for people to be able to better um, better experience these immersive experiences just as a, as a brief finishing thing I wonder if each of you could just say what does the future look like in terms of accessible immersive experiences and what's the timeline? Go on, Larry, I'll put you on the spot first. Um, I I like the idea that we've been talking about and that's personalization. Um, And as technologies in a non-invasive way begin to learn how we use them, they should shape to our needs. So if, for instance... um, you're constantly riding the audio up and down, up and down, because it's not working for you if you're hard of hearing. It'd be nice if it just simply adjusted and say, oh, this, this person really needs boost in the mid-range, and let's just set it that way. And maybe recognizing that my wife came in the room and she's got perfect hearing, so she doesn't need that. Hmm. Um, and this immersive and flexible interfaces that do personalization, learn from you, would be... Uh, pretty great timeline. The easy stuff I think we'll be doing within the next year. Captioning, yeah. description, taking what we know in linear flat media and applying it. But we want to go so far beyond that. Yeah. Uh, and that, I see two, three years. We want to apply image recognition, speech recognition to all these platforms, speech in, speech out. And I think it's not that far in the future. I mean, within the next yeah. five, I think we'll have very good, accessible, immersive experiences. Rupert. Uh, I, I see a future where the content creator creates one thing which uh, contains all the different elements and the information needed to ensure that you get the best possible experience, whatever device you decide to consume it on, whatever uh, environment you're in and whatever your needs may be, without you having to even think about it. Uh, it'll just happen and you will get the best possible experience. Timeline, um, I don't see it happening on broadcast television, you know, over-the-air stuff anytime soon because there isn't the bandwidth. But I think some of the European broadcasters will start delivering it over their online IP-based services within the next year. I think we'll start to see some stuff actually happen. 
be experimental and only occasional at first. It'll take a while to become the norm, but we will see something I'm pretty confident within the next year. How soon before the iMac outputs are implemented then, Chris? <clears throat> well, yeah, the future is an interesting question. Um, iMac-wise, I mean, we're in a fantastic place where we've got to the end of several cycles and we've got an open pilot about to start, so actually our player's going to become available very soon. Um, the future is an interesting um, direction. I mean, I, I agree with everything that's kind of been said um, from the perspective that it should be, we should be developing one product. At the moment, we're developing a movie and then the accessible version or the accessibility services on the side. In terms of the future, I, I really do see this inclusive scenario where it's one product and then it's down to customization. You just turn on what you want or you render it in whatever way you want to work for you. And I think that will be a much more exciting place. Um, but in terms of timeframes for that happening, as established in uh, conversations earlier, I can never work out timeframes. Uh, <laughs> I build a prototype in the lab and I expect someone to be using it the next day. I'm, I'm, that's as unrealistic as I ever get in terms of uh, timeframes. But I think we're going to see a trend. We're going to see things starting to improve now. And I think it's going to continue for many years to come. Jamie, yeah, what does the future look like and what's the timeline? Uh, and excuse the pun, but I think it's going to be the ultimate personal experience, the ultimate shared experience and I'm going to be bold 2020 there you go very nice next year we've got a launch date <laughs> or a launch year yeah. throw a few months out IBC you know which. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait and see at IBC okay thanks very much to the panellists it's for me it's been a, a really interesting conversation around not just accessibility but how that's embedded in personalisation as a whole which sounds like a great sell into the broadcasters and so on to make sure that material becomes accessible. So uh, if you could give them a traditional round of applause for uh, input there.